Zelmer introduced me earlier. And I am uh, super excited to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I am humbled and privileged that the Matthias elders would have me come to uh, proclaim God's word before their flock, whom God has charged them to be overseers and shepherds for, to care for them. And so I, I take my, my task very seriously, but also with a lot of joy and excitement. I'm excited uh, mainly because of the, the text that I'm given tonight. Um, it is 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It is one which God has been working on my heart and in my mind for quite some time and has, has blessed me with and I've been benefited from uh, just studying this text. And so it, it is my hope and prayer that you would be uh, equally or greater even uh, blessed by God through this passage. That um, I, I know that when a, a guest preacher comes in, especially during a series of uh, expositional preaching through a book, it's hard to just to jump right in and, and feel like, oh, this is going to connect. But uh, that is my goal, is to make it connect, but also um, to uh, not uh, try to mess up what's going on. So open your Bibles, if you would, with me to First John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10, 11, and 12. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. I'm actually going to start tonight tackling these verses with verse 12, the first part of it anyway. And then I'm going to go back to verses 10 and 11 and then finish up with the rest of verse 12. The reason for my doing this is that the first part of verse 12 kind of gives a, a good picture of what this entire passage, specifically of 1 John 4, 7 through 5, 3, is all about, which is having assurance of our salvation, assurance that we are truly saved, sons and daughters of God. It is about how we can know whether or not we are born of God, verse 7, and by one, whether or not we know God, verses 7 and 8, have his spirit, verse 13, and abide in him and he in us, verse 13. Question, are you truly saved? Are we certain that we are God's true children, that we are his beloved, fully accepted heirs? Do we really have assurance of our salvation? See, this section, and really the entire book, really helps us to answer <clears throat> these questions of uh, just everlasting consequence. I think the focus here, though, is on love. Love being the assurance of our salvation. So in 1 John 4, 7 and 4, 11, when we see the, the call to love, when John sounds that call to love one another, it is a call to Christians, to genuine Real saints, those born of God, those who know God, etc. For only those and all those who have experienced the saving love of God in Christ will respond obediently to John's exhortation of loving one another. So here's the rationale. That if you have been loved by God in this special and saving way, then you will truly love. If you truly love, then you can have full assurance of your salvation. Or, to shorten it, if you are loved, 
then you will love. And if you love, then you can know you are loved. might sound like circular reasoning, but the logic flows. The only way you can love like a saved person is to be saved. Thus, the only possible conclusion is that if you love like a saved person, you must be saved. That's who you are. It's proof. It's evidence. That's the basic meaning of 1 John 4.12a, where he says that although no one can see God, has ever seen God, not even Christians, we can, however, be assured of his nearness, indeed his indwelling us, if we love one another. In this conditional statement John gives here, the assurance that if we love one another, then we can be sure that he abides in us. We demonstrate, we prove that he is in us, for it is only by him abiding in us that we can and will love. It is a true fact that no one has ever seen God the Father, but it is equally true that although we cannot see him, he dwells with us, with us that is who love. And his abiding presence is the privilege and the mark and the blessing of only those who are genuine Christians. So it is clear that the assurance of our salvation is largely, albeit somewhat subjectively for us, it is largely based upon our love for others. I'm going to say that again. The basis of the assurance of our salvation is largely based on our love for others. How does that hit you? If it doesn't shake you, you're either not hearing me or you're not getting it. What if, what if this passage said this? That the assurance of your salvation is largely based upon your ability and the quality of your backflips. How would you fare? Some of you may be, well, I would not. If that was true, then I would go out and get a trampoline or something to work my backflips to have assurance of my salvation. I would work at it, but here's the problem. That's possible, right? Theoretically, for some anyway. But that's not what it says here. It says something far more difficult, impossible actually. It says that the sure sign that we are not going to heaven, that our, we are still in our sins and are on our way to hell, is that we do not always perfectly treat our spouses and our children and our co-workers with kindness. Our parents, those the guy who dumped you last year or the guy who, who uh, the boss who always yells at you but always lets everybody else slack off. How do you treat him with respect and affection? If it's not perfect, where's the assurance of your salvation? What if the degree of your certainty about your salvation depends on the degree of your sacrificial giving to those in need? What if the basis for your, the assurance of your salvation was on how you respond and react to the, guy, the jerk who cuts you off on Highway 70, or maybe worse yet, the fifth guy you led over ever so politely who did not give you the thank you wave. And if that is it, we're in trouble. Because you and I both know that we are far from perfect, especially in our love. We don't love everyone perfectly. And in fact, we don't, and we cannot love anyone perfectly ever. So to be honest with you, if, if the focus of my assurance of God being for me as my gracious heavenly father, instead of being against me 
as the holy judge. If, if my assurance, if the focus of my assurance for that was the measure of my own love for others, my soul would never be at rest. Would yours? The more soberly we look at how good we are loving others, the more we will be discouraged, not encouraged. If you had a sober judgment of your love and saw that as the assurance of your salvation, you would be depressed. You should be. But I don't think that's what John's getting at here. I don't think he's going for that. I think in verse 10 we see the focus. Look with me in 1 John 4.10. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. And John is not giving us some dictionary definition of love, but he's still defining it. He's limiting it, if you will, explaining what love is and what it is not. If you, if you think, in order to evaluate ourselves on loving for the assurance of our salvation, we need to understand what love is. And the result will either be the assurance of or the doubting of our salvation. We must understand what love is. I think here we find at least four things to understand what love is. Number one, love is not man-centered. It is not man-centered. I find it interesting that the first thing he tells us about, if you look, he says, in this is love, not that. He tells us what it's not. In doing so, I think he's, he's calling and saying, hey, there's misconceptions about love. If there were in John's day, there are many more in ours. <clears throat> the most common misconception, I think, is the one he gives. He tells us that love is not that we have loved God. It is not defined by us and our loving. It does not come from us. It does not originate from us. Just as the light, the only light that the moon has, it borrows from the sun, so too our love flows from God, the source of all love. So if you look for the supreme standard of love, you can say you're doing pretty well if you focus on how others are not doing so well, and you can compare. But the supreme standard of love and the truest essence of love cannot be our imperfect, tainted, wavering, conditional love of God. But rather, it is in direct contrast to our responsive love to God. Because you see that we were not, God did not pursue us to love us because we were already loving Him. It's the exact opposite. Ours, our love is a responsive love. God's is initiatory. That is a standard for, and that gives meaning to love. In this we see something that should not be our focus. Namely, our love. That should not be the focus. Or rather, we should focus on the following three things. If it is not man-centered, then what is it? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. He, God. So it's God-centered love. That's what love is. Love is God-centered. It is found in God's pure, steadfast, unfailing, perfect love for us. God is the source of all love. God is the originator of all love, the initiator of all love Again, God did not love us because we first loved him. But on the contrary, while we were still yet self-loving sinners, the complete opposite of loving God, he demonstrated his own love for us. But where does his love come from? From himself. He is love. So since love's essence is not found in our responsive love to the worthy him, but in his initiatory love of the unworthy us, therefore let this be our focus. The next phrase in verse 10 takes us to the third defining point of what love is. Not that we have loved him, not man-centered, 
but that he has loved us, God-centered, and sent his Son. It is Christ-centered. Love is Christ-centered. We cannot understand what love is apart from Jesus Christ. See, he doesn't just love us. People like to talk all the time, God loves you. God loves you. I will tell you that in all reality, he loves no one outside of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is this. Even the non-Christian, his love is because of Christ. Why is it that you are still sustained here? Why is it that he loves us and blesses us at all? It is because of Jesus Christ. So it is in the sending of his son that the fullness of love exists. This is because Jesus Christ gives love its meaning and its depth, its power and glory, its purpose and essence by how he expresses it in his self and in his work. There is no real love outside of Jesus Christ. And so moving on logically to the next last point is that it is not man-centered, but God-centered, and therefore Christ-centered because Christ is God, but it is also gospel-centered. Love is gospel-centered because it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be. When you find the word to there, it's a purpose clause. It's to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the purpose for why he was sent. So you cannot have Christ-centered without gospel-centered because Christ, the word, very word, means to be the promised one who would come to do something. Christ is not separated from his work. There is no good news without Jesus Christ and vice versa because Jesus came and was sent for the purpose of his gospel work. So the narrowing, you see the narrowing of the focus of what love is. John is using the gospel to define, to limit and explain what love is because God is all about the gospel, and the gospel is all about loving people by the propitiatory death and resurrection of his son. Now would be a good time to explain what propitiation means. It's a big word. Oftentimes people skip over big words or hard-to-say words or boring words or whatever you want to call it, but you cannot understand the gospel without understanding propitiation, and you cannot understand propitiation without understanding at least something about God as he is holy as he is just, and as he is wrathful. And about understanding as humans, we are sinful. Because it says, 1 John 4.10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, because God is infinitely holy. Now I say the word infinitely holy, and you say, oh, okay. No, infinitely holy, more than our minds can ever grasp, he is holy other and he is sinless and righteous and pure and good. First John 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Therefore, he must be just. And he must be wrathful against all sin. Wrathful just means his intense anger and hatred towards all sin. Because he must. Because he is holy. So propitiation, here would be a brief definition, is the means by which God's righteous wrath is turned away from us and satisfied in Jesus by his blood. That is, his blood being spilled out, blood shed, his death, his death on the cross for us condemned sinners in the place of us sinners. See, sinners are justified. That is, they are declared, like in a court, a court of law, judiciously, right and innocent before the holy God, the judge, 
How? By what means does he do this? By the propitiation pride provided by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Again, propitiation is the gospel. Because Jesus is the means. He doesn't just provide the means, but he became and was sent to become the means himself. He's not just a priest. He is the offering also. He is a satisfaction. So he is the priest and the offering by which God's holy, righteous, and just wrath for sin, for our sin, is turned away from us and satisfied in by being poured out upon Jesus Christ as the only worthy and sufficient substitute. See, and oftentimes that's, all, that's where it stops. The theological definition of propitiation, there you go. But it's lacking because of what we see here in 1 John 4.10. In this is love that he sent his son to be the propitiation. So you have to not only stand, understand that God is holy and just and wrathful, but that he is loving. You've got to get this so you don't get the good news. It was also God's love that caused him to send Jesus to satisfy God's wrath. Why else would he do it? If, he, if God wanted to be holy, as he is, and just, and wrathful, he could have just emptied out his wrath on all people and been completely satisfied and indestructibly happy forever. And he would still be holy. He would still be just. He would still be good. And he'd still have in his nature, in his essence, love. But because it was ple- he was pleased to be loving to us, to demonstrate it to us, his great and precious love sent his son to be the one who would, on whom he would dispense his righteous and intense anger for our sin. If you try to understand love without that, you're always going to fall short. The God who was intensely and justly, take that, justly, angry at me because of my sin and my sinfulness is the same God who ever so mercifully sent his Son to this earth to take a hum- on human flesh so that God would murder him in my place. What love is this? It is the gospel love. It is the gospel love of the Almighty. The one who in Christ saves his people who rest in and surrender to him. This is the definition, the supreme standard, the truest essence of love and that's what John wants us to get. But why would he labor to give us this, this not man-centered, God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered definition of love? Well, number one, to give us a better understanding of God. First John 4, 7 and 16. God is love. To understand him better, we understand love. Number two, to understand the gospel better. Without love, there is no gospel. Why else would he send his son? And number three... He, he put this in here, this definition in verse 10, so we would have meaning in verse 11. It's motivation for us to love. That's the point of verse 11. It says this, Beloved, in verse 11, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The focus here is the only proper and sufficiently powerful motivation to obey the exhortation to love. 
If we look at verse 11, it might seem to, to base our loving on this example of God loving us in Jesus. While that may be part of the basis, it is not all of it, and it's not the focus. See, in biblical Christianity, we have more than just a strong exhortation. We have that. Beloved, let us love one another. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We have the exhortation. But we also have more than a good example. Jesus is the ultimate example, right? He's perfect. That is true. But every religion has that. See, we also have the need for the right motivation. This is not to say that every other religion and non-religion don't have motivation. They do. But it's, where, where's the focus of their motivation? Where's the direction? What motivation do you have to love? Why do you or why would you strive to do something with a sincere heart for another person, for their benefit, when they clearly do not deserve it? Why would you do that? What's your motivation behind it? Is it that perhaps, <clears throat> you know, I'll feel better? Is it to be better? See, the secular humanists, they do good things for people. Mormons are some of the nicest and most moral people in the world. Buddhists are known for their peaceful and kind demeanor. But why? Why are they like that? Why do they do that? What's their motivation? Why do people specifically, why do you seek to love people? You see, if you're motivated to be accepted by those around you or motivated to love others so that they will in turn love you or motivated to be accepted in yourself. You say, you know, I feel better about myself so I'm okay because self-esteem is all I need, right? Or maybe your motivation is, is to love others so that God will accept you. Or maybe not just to have that salvation but the, the security, the assurance of your salvation because it says here, that if we love, God abides in us. So, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll love so I can get assurance of salvation. What's your motivation? <clears throat> See, these reasons that I just gave, they're all common reasons for non-Christians to love. But may they never be found in the Christian. What then is to be the proper motivation to love? It is for us Christians not to be loved, but because we are loved. Our motivation to love is not to be accepted by God or anyone, but because we are accepted. It is not to secure our salvation, but because it already is secure in Jesus Christ. You see, the God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered love for us is the only proper motivation for us to love others. As we unfold this a bit more, I, I want to say this, that there's one other thing that Christianity has that no other religion has. Every religion has exhortations to love and examples for love. A lot of them will include Jesus and say, he might be the best. They won't go farther than that, but they'll say that. And they even have motivations, albeit they're all wrong except for Christianity, the right motivation. But there's one thing that no other religion has, no other way of life has, but biblical Christianity. It is the power to love. You see, true love is exhorted, and we have that exhortation. True love is exemplified, and we have that. True love is evoked, where we, we're motivated, and true love is enabled all by Jesus Christ. That's what we have in verse 11. See, this verse is not mere exhortation, as though all it said was, we ought to love one another. 
That's not what it says, does it? Nor is it mere example or imitation as though it said, you know, we ought to love one another since, beloved, God so loved us, we ought to, ought to love one another in the same exact way that he did. It is not talking about our manner of love here, but the cause of our love. It's a causal idea. Verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. See, but neither does it say merely this. Since or because God so loved, we also ought to love one another. It's not just a general idea, a general fact that, oh, God loves. He's a loving being, so let's be like God. That's not, that's not motivational. That's not inspiring and powerful. That will not enable you to love anybody like Christ. Here's what it says. Beloved is your first clue. Since or because God so loved us. God, God so loved us. So that we, the we who are loved, also ought to love one another. You got to get this. It is only because he has loved sinful, unworthy us in his son. It is only the love of God in Jesus for us that begets love in us for others. God's love produces love in those whom he loves. Take, for example, the sinful woman in Luke 7, 37 through 48. I'm not going to read the passage. I just want to tell you, this woman, sinful woman, hears that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house. So she goes. And she's there. And she, she, she hears him reclining at the table. So she comes to him. And as soon as she walks in, she starts kissing his feet. And it brings tears to her eyes. And it drips on his feet. And to, and to clean his dusty, dirty feet, he, she starts wiping them with her, with her hair. And she brings this expensive alabaster jar of ointment and she starts anointing his feet with oil. And the Pharisee goes, he thinks to himself, Jesus doesn't even know who she is for she's a sinner. There's no way he would even let her near him if he knew who she was. But upon knowing his thoughts, Jesus says to, to Simon, this Pharisee, he says, let me tell you a story. There was these two guys one owned like, owed like $500 million to their, to their master. Another one owed like $500 to their master. And he knew they both could not repay it, so he forgave them both and said, you have no debt. You owe me nothing. He says, who loves them more? Who loves their master more now? And he said, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt. And he says, precisely, you've judged rightly. And he says, this woman, you, you did not kiss me. You did not wipe my, wa- give me water for my feet. You did not... You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has been doing this nonstop since she got here. She loves me much because she has been forgiven much. The point here is this. That when we get a, when we have this little thought, this, this despising, this making small of God's holiness, we will have little thoughts of our sin. And when we have little thoughts of God's holiness and our sin, we will have little thoughts of his love because it's saving us from our sin and his wrath which comes out of his holiness. But when we get a better grasp on the depth of our forgiveness, we get a better grasp on the depth of God's love for us. And as the result, Jesus says, is that we will be loving more because of it. He who is forgiven or loved much by God, will love much. See, this is something that is 
over the past few months has dawned on me, Christianity is all about love. It really is. And it, it, it is very much about us loving, being loving people, loving one another, but that is not it primarily. It is first and foremost, not our love, but His love. It's the fact that we are loved. Christianity is defined by being the beloved. See, for when we turn to love because of his love for us, we will really have something to share with others, won't we? The only two exhortations to love in this entire passage, again, are verse 7 and 11. Beloved, verse 7 says, let us love one another. And verse 11 says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Both start with the word beloved. That's a clue. John, the apostle of love, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his favorite title for himself, reminds, he reminds these people here that the focus of their loving should not be their loving, but should be on God loving them. It is those who are the beloved, those who are loved by God in Jesus Christ, who ought to love. For it is only when we know and rely on the love God has for us that we can and will be enabled, freed, and properly motivated to love others. It is only those who have been born of God, the God who is love, it is only those who have been born of God who have been emancipated from their self-centered hearts of stone to love others truly and rightly. It is only those who know God, really, who have what it takes to fully love. And it is only those who have been given of His Spirit who have the sufficient power to love others. Therefore, we must not focus on us loving God or others, but on God loving us. We will never, ever be properly motivated or sufficiently empowered to love unless unless we focus on God's great love for us in Jesus. As I was discussing this passage in 1 John with my wife at home a few days ago, she asked me this question. She says, why is it that God's love for us necessarily leads us to love others? She was asking about the logical connection of it all. How does it flow? How does that work? Okay, God loves me. Okay, that leads me to love others. How does that work? Do we just accept it? The answer is this, God's love, since he is love and since his pursuing love for ungodly, unlovable rebels is the supreme standard and truest essence of love because that love, God's love is of such a kind, such a powerful, almighty, effective kind, it destroys our resistance to love others. It rescues us from our suicidal self-centeredness and it creates and awakens in us a delight and a burden to love others. And yet still more specifically, not just his love for us, but his love for us, Christ-centered, gospel-centered in Jesus Christ. It's not a mere abstraction. The love of God for us in Jesus that compels and constrains us to love others is not something just for philosophy majors and ivory tower theologians to muse upon and say, hmm, not nice. It is a reality, a twofold reality, one external and one internal. The external reality is this. It's what nine, verse 9 and 10 talk about. In this, love has been manifested, that he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
the external, objective, historical reality is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ did something that was so powerful that it achieved something. It achieved something for us. He purchased. He actually purchased our salvation. He didn't just make it possible. He didn't just provide an opportunity. He purchased salvation. The completeness of it. And when I say complete salvation, I mean not only our justification, not just our being forgiven, but also our sanctification, our regeneration, our renewal on the inside, what us becoming like Jesus means. He purchased that too. See, the, the external reality is that Christ did something that produces something. His love-filled death and resurrection first forgives us sinners and then transforms us sinners. See, it says we are saved from sin. That's the most common thing it says in Scripture about salvation. We are saved from sin. There's a, there's a penalty for sin, which is what we always think about, and that's true. We are saved from hell. In Jesus Christ. We are saved from God's wrath. But we are also saved from the pleasure of sin and the power of sin. And ultimately one day in heaven, in glory, the presence of sin forever. The fullness of sin is salvation. That's what we are saved from. So out of this external reality though flows the internal reality of God's love for us. What's the internal reality? It's that, again, while 2,000 years ago what Jesus did purchased something for us, it also brought forth this internal reality that happens in our time when the Holy Spirit comes to us, works in us, recreates, regenerates, makes us born of God with His love so as to change us in our hearts for good. See, our hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. Our minds of hostility toward God and man change and become like God's in mind of peace and love. See, this is when we get brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. If we are passive in it and thankful for it, God creating in us his heart of love. Romans 5, 5 says that he poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It is God's lovingly it is God lovingly making us new creations in Christ. God's love for us becomes God's love in us and through us. In these two realities. What Jesus did in history and what the Holy Spirit does in present time. So that when verse 11 says that we ought to love one another, it is solely based upon what God has done for us, meaning what he has done in us with his love. Listen to what Dr. John Piper says of this verse. He says that when John writes this, how are we to understand this word ought? If you forgot everything else in the preceding five verses, you might be able to say, well, the point of the incarnation and the atonement even is imitation. It's example. God loved us. We look at how he did it and we love each other too. We're obliged to. But John has not forgotten what he wrote in verses 7 and 8 where he says, whoever loves God, sorry, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So when he says, we ought to love each other, he means ought the way fish ought to swim in water and birds ought to fly in the air and living creatures ought to breathe and peaches ought to be sweet and lemons ought to be sour and hyenas ought to laugh and born again people ought to love. It is who we are. He says, this is not mere imitation. For the children of God, imitation becomes realization. We are realizing who we are when we love. Because God, who is love, 
gave birth to new creatures in Christ. See, and so our motivation and our power to love is God's love for us in Christ. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, the constant motive and the sustaining power of our love to God and others is His love to us. That's the only proper and sufficient motivation to love. Now we come back full circle to verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. In this last phrase, and his love is perfected in us. It talks about the assurance of our salvation. If we love, we, we can be assured that we prove that God abides in us because it is by his abiding power and presence in us that we can love. But he says that his love is perfected in us. This does not mean that we become perfect or that our love becomes perfect. Far from it, we still know that as Christians, don't we? But, and, and it also is not this. It says that his love is perfected in us, but it does not mean that his love is not perfect. It always has been, it always will be perfect in the essence sense, in the quality sense. But this word perfected here means fulfilled or completed. As though God's love has its achieved, has achieved its intended goal when we love. So you see, God's love for us reaches its ultimate end and purpose when it causes us to love one another. That's the meaning here. God's love for us in Christ is not merely meant to make us feel good, and it is not even merely meant to save us from hell, though it is surely not less than that. God's love for us is meant to do something in us and that through us. Do you see the focus then of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation? If you were just to take a superficial glance at this passage of 10 through 12, you might be tempted to, to conclude that we should say this. I am saved because God loves me in Christ. But I know that I am saved. I have assurance of my salvation because I love God. But that's not the emphasis here. And in fact, I think John is telling us not to say that. He's saying don't talk that way. Your focus is not your love. This in this is love, not that we have loved God. Don't make that the focus, but that we have been loved by God. So we should not say, I am saved because God loves me in Christ, but I know I am saved because I love God, but rather we should say instead, I am loved, sorry, I am saved because God loves me in Christ, and I know that I am saved because God's love has done and is doing something in me. His love for me in Jesus is causing me to love others. You see the perfection of his love. It's having its, it's the culmination of it. It's complete when it pushes us, provides us, and it, it not only evokes and motivates, but it enables and it frees us. It gives us the delight and the burden to love others so that we must. That's the idea of the ought. That we must because that's who we are. The difference of the focus is huge. <clears throat> Let me illustrate with a, a story that <clears throat> my friend Ryan Mawson and I, uh, for kind of a senior trip when we were 18, went out to L.A. together. We were 18 years old, and we were walking down a pier in Santa Monica where there was this street evangelist, and he was loud and rude and obnoxious, and um, he was intense. He wouldn't give up. So we, we stood, and of course, just piquing my interest, I got a little closer and got a little closer until he just confronts me and says, Son, are you saved? And I said, yes. And he says, well, how do you know? And I said, well, because I believe in Jesus, that he 
lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again for me in my place. And he says, no good, no good. Even the devil believes and is not saved. At this time, those who know me well, you can ask, or rather don't ask my wife, she will say that I'm a wee bit argumentative, so that I was a little agitated, and I said, well, actually, sir, it says even the demons believed, believe and shudder in James 2.19. He says, no, 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 I got right here the authorized King James Version. I will eat this entire book if it, says not the, if it doesn't say that the devil believes. And so I, at the time, was taking a New Testament Greek class at Missouri Baptist University, and I said, interesting. Well, sir, let me tell you, and my friend grabbed me by the arm and said, let's go, let's go. <clears throat> and uh, I, I couldn't sleep that night. I was just so, like, agitated, like, just musing over this interaction and saying, you know, man, all the things I could have, would have, should have said, if he's back out there tomorrow, I know what I'm going to say, and all this stuff. But in all this, I realized something. He was right. Not about the devil demon thing. It really says daimonion, which means demons, but whatever, anyway. He, he was right about the weakness of my answer the shallowness of my answer to him as to how I know I am saved. What I said was, I know I am saved because I believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. That might be how you get saved. How God, what God, the means that he uses is our faith in Christ, but that's not how the assurance of our salvation comes. You see, the focus there was not on God, was it? I know I am saved because I believe. It was on my believing, not on God and his sovereign love for me and his sovereign work in my life. How do you know? How do you know that you are a Christian? How many people, how many billions of people are so self-deceived? Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10 talks about how deceitfully wicked our heart is above all things. Who can know it? Are you confused? Are you deluded? Are you tricked? Did the devil do it? How do you know? How can you be sure that you are saved and accepted fully as a child of God? How can you be certain that when you die, if you die tonight, that you will be rescued from hell, delivered from, and brought safely into the arms of Jesus Christ forever? How do you know that? How can you be so, sur- so sure and certain? If your answer was as lame as mine, I pity you. If you answer by saying something like, because I believe in Jesus, that's how I know I'm saved. Or, or because I said a prayer, it was really, really eloquent. Or because I walked this aisle, signed a card, shake the pastor's hand, was baptized. <clears throat> or maybe even this. I remember in one sermon, this one guy was talking about, I don't know anything else. But he talked about how if I love, I can be sure I'm saved. So I, I know I'm saved because I love. If you say any of that, or if you say anything else that starts with the sinful, precarious, woefully unfaithful, and easily deceived and confused, I then the assurance of your salvation will ebb and flow with the tides of your unstable emotions, uncertain and ever-changing circumstances, and your more easily than you think shaken faith. I have learned, and I want you to get this now, your salvation and the assurance of your salvation lies in God, not you. So an answer to the question of how you know you are truly saved should not be because I, anything, but because God, everything. Not because I did this, or I believe this, or I feel this, or I've done this, or not I. 
Well, because God, because God has created in me and is growing in me a Christ-like faith, a Christ-like righteousness, and a Christ-like love. Not perfectly yet. Never this side of heaven. But it's there and it's growing and it's not mine. It wasn't me. I didn't create this in me. He did it. And I know it because that wasn't me at all before. There was a change and he wrought it in me. Let the focus forever be not on our love but on his love for us that does something in and through us. Are you a non-Christian here tonight? Or or maybe you're not sure. Maybe we've been talking about the assurance of salvation and you say, I don't know anymore. It's always been based on my feelings or experience. If you're not sure, then I want you to dwell deeply on your sins and your sinfulness. And I want you to dwell deeply and keenly on God's great holiness so as to be amazed that he has led you here tonight to hear about his love. Be amazed that he's allowing you to breathe, that he's sustained your life for yet another second as though you were storing up wrath for him God has given you the opportunity to hear about his love and he's brought you here, sustained you still. Run to the rescuer, Jesus Christ. Because you need God's love. You need God's love in Christ. You need this God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered message of his love. He has called you, that is love, and he has commanded you, this is love, that you trust in his Son, Fall on the Savior of love, I implore you. But you, maybe you are a Christian, and, but, you, but you know that you need to grow. You, you're lacking maturity, and you've been convicted that you don't love like you should. Let me, let, me, let me challenge you. Don't try to stir up love within yourself. Don't do that. You're going to try to work harder at it. And continually drive yourself deeper into the ground, focusing on your love. But rather, do this. Immerse yourself in the study of God's love for you. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a growing understanding and knowledge of the doctrine of God's love? Do you better understand propitiation now than you did a year ago? If I asked you to give me the gospel, could you do it in 10 seconds? And could you do it for an hour? Do you better understand what you are all about as a beloved child of God. If you are not deepening your understanding of the gospel of love, it will be not gracious and amazing grace. It will be boring grace. It will be love's not all excelling, but love's kind of there. It will be, yeah, God loves me, so what? There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It will not seem or feel or be to you, in your life, as powerful as it truly is when you focus on your love, not his? Or are you maybe here a Christian, a mature? You're a leader. You teach. You share. You love. You study. You serve. Then I'm going to challenge you to do this. Maybe you need to take a moment every day and stop loving God by doing things for him. And you need to start remembering to love God by being loved by him in the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When is the last time you stopped and said, God, if I did nothing else for the rest of my life and just sat and meditated on your love for me, I would never, ever reach. There's no bottom and there's no brim. I could never get it. Oh, but I want to. 
Don't compare your love to others and their love. And don't even focus on your love, but take time to be overwhelmed by the love of God for you in Christ your Savior. I just want to give you quickly five simple practical steps for all of us to help us focus more on God's love and not our own when we're challenged to love or when we fail to love. Number one, stop and pray. Stop and pray. Wherever you're at, if you feel the challenge or the the failing of love, recognize that you cannot create it in yourself. Stop and pray. Number two, memorize and meditate daily on scriptures that are seriously and just heavy laden with this focus of God's gospel love for us. Stop and pray. Memorize and meditate. Number three, write down every day, morning and or night, how God has loved you that day. Just for that day. Don't try to take your your entire life and write the story. Just write simple things that God has done and amazing things that God has done for you. Number four, set aside time to study deeply and to study seriously. Let your mind be okay with being confused for a little while when you study the doctrine of the love of God. And number five, sing songs. Many, many songs that clearly and that with full pact of truth emphasize God's love for us in Jesus. See, we desperately need, we desperately need a God-centered, Christ-centered, and gospel-centered focus of love. Do you want to know the major thought that's been running through my head as I've been preparing for this sermon this, this couple of weeks? Good, I'll tell you. It's this. Why is it that I can cry over being, just studying and, and, and praying about and listening to and singing about God's great love for me in Christ and yet then turn around right after and fail to love my wife or my children or my neighbors or whoever. God, my thought was this. God, I know that your word, your true and trustworthy word says that your love for me and my focus on it creates and produces love in me and through me, but I don't feel it working. Here's my problem. It was twofold. Number one, I was thinking of this as a magic trick. Like, you know, I can focus on God's love for me in Christ for a few minutes and then all of a sudden I'll automatically be more loving for others. As though I can manipulate this. I will tell you, there are, I guarantee, there are no games, there are no tricks, there are no gimmicks, there's no master keys in the Christian life. It is resting in his love for you. See, my focus then was really not on God's love for me, but on how I can manipulate the truth to create love in myself. But I'm not the source of it, am I? God is love. He is the originator. He is the source. So I need to focus on and trust in and not manipulate, but delight myself in God's love for me and trusting that he will lead me to love others with it. Number two, I was focusing on my love or literally the lack lack thereof, saying, I'm not doing it, God. I get so frustrated when I'm not loving and I know that I'm focusing on your love, but then I turn around and focus on how I don't. So when you don't read your word, the, the word of God, like you should every day, when you don't pray consistently and fervently, when you lack to sing with gusto, godly gusto in praise to him, when you don't share with others like you should, and when you fail to love others by doing things you shouldn't or by not doing things you should, then run to Jesus again and depend on his love for you anyway. See, the moment we are challenged to love and fail at loving, we must Focus on him who loves us still. I want to give you one last quote. It's a great quote from the Prince of Preachers, uh, John uh, C.H. Spurgeon. 
from the 1800s in London. He says this, Love has for us parent the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. But after it is divinely born in our hearts, it must be divinely nourished. On what then does love feed? Why it feeds on love. That which brought it forth becomes its food. We love because he first loved us. The constant motive and sustaining power of, of our love to God is his love to us. He says, bear me witness, beloved. Where did your love spring from? Where was it born? But from the foot of the cross. Did you ever see that sweet flower of love growing anywhere else but at the foot of Calvary? No, it was when you saw divine love, love all excelling, outdoing its own self. It was when you saw love in bondage to itself, dying by its own stroke, lying down its life. It was there your love was born. And if you wish your love, when it is sick, to be recovered, take it to the sweet cross of Christ, unmatched, an unparalleled, powerful love for you. I want you to, beloved of Christ, to look upon the screen for this next slide. And I want you to gaze upon these words. And I I want you to let them sink in. Sink into your hearts as you dwell on how often you have neglected to seek God and serve Him and worship Him and trust Him and love Him. Read it and think about how often you have spurned and despised His love by by your discontentment. Let this truth permeate your soul as you keep reading it over and over again as you think about your irreverence and your lack of God-focus and your overabundance of self-focus and self-praise. Continue to read it again and again and again. Keep reading as you recall how many times just this week or today that you have not focused on his love and you have reacted harsh to someone else. You've reacted harsh to someone's harsh comment or even worse. Your focus in this is it. God's love for you in Christ is what leads you to worship. It will lead you to love. And think not only how you've been forgiven so many sins all day, every day, but focus also on how many times he has blessed you and benefited you and given you gifts. The Almighty King has delighted to bestow upon you the unworthy you. Just this year, just this week, just this day, how many gifts you do not deserve. But read it again. I want you to keep reading as the song comes to play. If you can, or if you can't, close your eyes and worship. And just thank and trust and treasure God in Christ for his love for you. For the Savior who bled and died and rose again in your place. While we sing this next song, let's ask God to help us to understand his deep and unfathomable love for us in Christ. That we do not and will not ever, cannot deserve. Keep reading. Don't let your focus from his, his love fall. <laughs>